on over to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's going to be one somewhere in front of you. Uh, and, and you're going to probably see it's staggered every other with the hymnals down there as well. And you're more than welcome to take that if you don't own a Bible. Um, if you find yourself curious what version of the Bible I'm using, that's ESV. So some of you have digital versions. If you want to dial in and download that one, uh, you can. I was joking with a friend uh, a few days ago, actually a few weeks ago now, um, about the ESV. It stands for English Standard Version, but my, my joke was, and I was joking, that it, it should stand for like the Everybody Should Version. Um, but, but we're not that kind of church, all right? So we're not ESV only, um, but uh, it's, it's just kind of something to have a little bit of fun with. Uh, and we're going to see some of that play itself out this morning, actually. Uh, we're going to see how um, words get translated differently over the course of time. And uh, in, in, in regards to the English language, it, it's kind of silly. So we're going to have a little fun with the text here this morning. Uh, but we began last week walking through this book of Philippians, this book that the Apostle Paul wrote from a Roman prison in Rome. He had appealed to Caesar. He was in and with some Roman officials. Some Jews were trying to get him in trouble, and he made his case and said, I just want to go talk to the head honcho. And so on to Rome he went. And there's a shipwreck involved. There was an an amazing rescue involved. There was uh, no loss of life. It's just a phenomenal story in Acts 25 and 26 and 27. And you get to chapter 28 and Paul's in Rome. And we're told that he is able to welcome guests and visitors. He's lived for two years at his own expense. In, in some ways, you get the idea that it was, a, it was more of a house arrest type of situation as he awaited his trial, but he was in chains. So even under house arrest, he says, and we'll say three times in the book of Philippians at least, I- I'm in chains. Now, we don't know whether he was chained to a guard or whether he was chained somewhere to the house. We don't know how long that chain was, where that chain and its length was in relationship to the restroom or his bed or the kitchen. I mean, we know none of those details other than he's in a jail. He is in prison. He is literally in chains and he is able to receive visitors, which was an amazing opportunity that he took advantage of to preach the gospel, to meet with Jews, to have contact with them as he would have done in any other city where, let me tell you about Jesus from the Old Testament, let me tell you who this guy was and how he is the Messiah, and he was awaiting to make his appeal before Caesar. And over the course of those two years, he writes this book that we refer to as Philippians, and he writes it to a church that was located in Philippi, and it was in a Macedonia country, it's in Macedonia, and he, 10 to 12 years before he penned this letter, had visited that country, had met some women down by the river, had shared the gospel with them, they get saved, he then gets thrown in jail, but the jailer gets saved, and all of the jailer's household, and this little church pops up. And 10 to 12 years later, it's no longer just this little church of a few individuals. It's a church that has a leadership structure 
We have no idea what the size of this church was, but we know they had elders and deacons. You don't have to be a large church to have elders and deacons, but they had leadership. They had godly biblical leadership involved. This church has grown in some tremendous ways over 10 to 12 years, and Paul just writes to them to encourage them. He writes to them to thank them. He writes to them to let them know that he's doing okay and to say, hey, thank you for your gift and here's what's going on and here's what I'm learning and here's what I want you to learn. And so last week we saw in the text that Paul says, look, Philippian church, every time I think about you, I'm, I'm prompted to pray for you and I, and I do. And every time I pray for you, my, my heart is filled with joy for you because you're, you're a partaker, you're a participant, you're a fellowshipper in this thing called the gospel. And God's doing some amazing things. And I think back to those days 10 to 12 years ago down by the river and then in jail and, and all of these things that the Lord did and I'm, I'm, I'm just overflowing with joy. And when I pray for you, that's what happens. And he says, look, there's this promise I want to give you. There's this foundational peace that I want you to build your lives upon. And we looked at that in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1 last week, that, that it's God who began this work in you, and it's God who's going to bring it to completion. So from beginning to end, God finishes what he starts. Now this morning, Paul's going to give them, and we're going to look at a command that he gives them, and he is going to give some instruction but he does so on the basis of, first of all, letting them know that your entire life, Philippian church, is to be built on this foundational promise that the gospel and your salvation first began with God's work in you, and God is going to complete that work as well. And it's from that basis, it's from the basis of a relationship that the gospel always then, or the Bible always then, gives commands even in the Old Testament, that's what we see in Exodus 20, where God says in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. So there's a declaration of a relationship. And then he begins to give them the Ten Commandments. And the same is found in the New Testament as well. There's a declaration here of what God has done and what God will do. And then there's some instruction for this body of believers. And it's so important we understand it in that order because we don't do things, we don't work, we don't, we, don't, we don't come to church, we don't give to the offering plate, we don't attend communion, we don't do any of those things so that God will love us, so that God will place his heart and his affections upon us. We, we do all of those things in response to what God has done. And as a good father, he's declared us to be his children. He's made us his children. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters. And as a good father, we're unadoptable. And then he has some things for us. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning as we look at Philippians 1, verses 7 to 11. It's this instruction that Paul has for this church, this instruction that, that matters a whole lot. But we've got to be really careful on what basis we understand this instruction. On what basis we understand even the whole concept of doing any good works. Because the Bible's got a lot to say about good works. It tells us that we're prepared for good works and we should do good works. I mean, there's some things that we're to do, but none of that is so that we can earn our salvation or try to earn God's favor or try to earn God's love. 
And these things and the order of those things matters tremendously. So let's pray before we even hop into these verses in the text and we'll consider these things that Paul has to say. Would you join me? Father God, we ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and and eyes to see and, and hearts that would understand what it is that you've written in your word. God, we pray that you would come and you would meet with us and, and, and do so in a special way. And, and, and God, as I've been praying in anticipation for this morning and, and as I have almost every morning over the past several weeks here in this room, that you would not just meet with us collectively, but also individually. God, that your word and, and you speaking through your word would, would come and, and meet us individually. God, certainly, Lord, as a group, we want to be formed by your word. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to be the bride that he calls us to be. And, Lord, also to each individual person. God, we pray that that would be true and in increasing measure. And so, God, we ask for those ears to hear and those eyes to see and hearts to believe And God, I pray that you would guard my words from error this morning, that they would be accurate to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, let's go to the text. Let's begin at verse 7. Let's just read verses 7 to 11, and then we'll hop in and we'll break some of that down. Paul writes, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, he's referencing the fact that when he prays for them, he's really joyful about them. And he's like, it's, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the with yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul begins there in verse 7 and says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you all in my heart. He's like, I, 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 I pray for you. And when I think for, of you, I, I pray for you. And when I pray for you, I'm joyful about you. And it, the good work of the gospel and how we're fellow participants in the gospel and how that's happened from that day down by the river until now. And, and, and it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Now, in the first century, this word heart it was the Greek word cardia, which may sound really fancy, but it's an English word that we have floating around all over the place. Cardiology. My son has a cardiologist. That's just the word Paul uses. It was not a word that refers to like the Valentine's Day lovey-dovey emotional stuff. All right, so he does not have in mind Cupid shooting arrows at somebody's heart. He doesn't have in mind candy hearts with little cute sayings on them or cards all, all filled with hearts. That's not how this word would have been used 
by those living in the first century. The, the heart was seen as the center of choice-making and planning. So it really, it wasn't devoid of emotions, it wasn't emotionless, but it has much more to do with the choices you make, not necessarily what you feel. So when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he's not just saying, let all of your emotions be focused at God. I mean, there's, there's a sense where that should be true, but he's saying, let all of your choices and your planning and your thinking be geared and focused towards God. So he uses this word to say, look, I I hold you in my heart as I think about you and as I consider you. I I have joy because of who you are. And it's right for me to feel this way about you. And he continues, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now there's a couple things there continuing in verse 7 for us to have our focus and attention on. First, Paul continues to use the word all. He said it earlier in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. He continues and goes back to that. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Why does that word all matter? Well, it matters as he's using it. He's not just talking to a few people in the church. He's talking to the entire church. He's talking to the saints that are in this church. He's talking to the elders and to the deacons. He's referencing all of these people. See, there wasn't, there wasn't people in the church that he wished weren't in the church. It's not that they were perfect people. It's not that the church was completely without some issues. He's going to address that when he gets to chapter 4. But he's grateful for all of them. And he says, it's because you are partakers with me of grace. Now, in your Bibles, and if you, have a, if you have a Bible that you can highlight if it's digital, or you've got a print copy that you can write in, do this, because in, chapter, or in verse 5 and in verse 7, Paul uses the same word twice that gets translated two different ways in our Bibles. And I want to point this out to you because it matters. In verse 5, he writes, because of your partnership. That's the first occurrence of this word. Because of your partnership. The second occurrence in verse 7 is, for you are all partakers. So partnership and partakers in verse 5 and 7. It's the same word. What it means is fellowshippers. That would be a literal translation of this word. Partnership and partakers are not bad translations. The idea there, though, is fellowship. And the word fellowship in the Bible is a, is a pregnant word. It is a word that is just filled with meaning. And it has intense, incredible meaning that captures not only just this church's salvation, but everything that has resulted out of that. It's a word that's used in Acts 2, where the believers were devoting themselves to fellowship. And it gets expressed there in Acts 2, in that everyone who had means gave everything they had to the feet of the apostles. And again, that got redistributed and nobody was out or without anything. See, this word fellowship means that essentially what is mine is yours. And together we're going to do everything that needs to be done to take this gospel forward. I think we've lost a little bit about a little bit in our day in regards to what this word means and how the Bible uses this word. Because I think there's there's times that we can reduce the idea to fellowship 
to having a meal and some laughs and sharing some good stories and driving away and, and, and feeling, feeling happy because of what we've experienced. I mean, we have, we have a room in our church which is called the Fellowship Hall. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not proposing this morning that we change the name of that room. It's just, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than just next Sunday us coming to the church picnic and driving away after that time's done, having shared a good meal together and spent time together and had some laughs with one another and watched our kids play and going, that was a lot of fun. Because quite honestly, folks, if, if that's all we define fellowship as, there's nothing different there than what the world does when it gets together and has a good time and has some laughs and eats good food. So this idea of fellowship in the Bible is so much more than just, oh, we enjoyed being together and we feel encouraged by doing so. All of those things are good. Let's enjoy being together. Let's be encouraged by doing so. But let's, but let's just recognize that this word goes much further beyond that. And here Paul is talking in verse 5 and verse 7 to say, look, you are partners. You are fellowshippers with me in this gospel. And it has caused you to do some really tangible things. And for this church, that and those tangible things were the, the monetary support they gave him. The, the continued, continued encouragement they gave to Paul in doing so. The idea of fellowship is that we, we have a bond and that bond causes us to do and live certain ways. And it's not just sharing a meal and having some laughs and driving away encouraged. All of those things are good, but it is so much deeper than that. It's this idea that, you know what, what's mine is yours and when you're in need, I'm there to meet that need. It's when I have need, you are there to meet my needs. And I think sometimes we can be really, really good at offering to meet somebody's need and maybe not as good as welcoming our needs being met. So we got a little bit of the American, I, I can do, let me be on my own. Well, no, the, the church is never to act that way. It's to be seen as this body of believers that, that fellowships and that gives and receives as one is able and has need. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, you're a partaker in this grace. You're a with-fellowshipper in this grace, both in my imprisonment, in his chains, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so here Paul is telling him, look, I I'm in jail, and you are sharing in my needs in that and encouraging me in that. But I want you to know that my imprisonment, my chains, are for the defense of the gospel and for the confirmation of the gospel. We're going to see a lot more of that next week as he writes and explains to them how the gospel is advancing despite the fact he personally is in chains. But he wants them to understand that the gospel has not been tethered, even though he has been tethered. The gospel is being defended. It is going forth. In Philippian church, you are encouraging me and you are sharing in that despite the fact I'm wearing chains. And he then continues in verse 8. For God is my witness, 
how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Jesus. So Paul writes this word yearn, and and it's a pretty intense word that just means I I long to see you. It's it's that feeling and that desire that you have when when you know or you desire or want to see a close friend you haven't seen in a long time. And maybe then the, the prospect of seeing them comes on the horizon and you just can't wait for that day to get there. Like I can't wait to go see those friends. And that's the idea as Paul expresses it, this yearning that he has for them. But he says, look, my yearning for you all, again, all, it's for the church. It's not just for a few people. He said, is with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, I love you with the love that Jesus has for you. Now, here's where we're going to have some fun in, in regards to Bible translation stuff. Just, just out of curiosity, who this morning has the authorized King James Version with them? Hands up. Okay. Have you read verse 8 yet? It probably reads a little weird, if we're honest. All right, I'm going to put verse 8 on the screen for the rest of you, Okay. Because here is verse 8 in the King James Version. For God is my record, how I greatly long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now you may read that and wonder what your, old te- what your, your, your large intestine, ha- intestine has to do with Jesus and the Philippian church. It's a fair question. In our culture, the heart is kind of the center of the emotions, all right, so bring back to the conversation everything that kind of happens around Valentine's Day. And those love notes, I love you with all of my heart. All right, it's, it's, it's common to say that. It's not wrong to say that. It's kind of what that word means. Well, I told you in the first century, the word heart had, had a little bit less to do with emotions and more to do with thinking and choosing and volition. And, and I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make this choice. That, that's how the word heart was used. Well, their center of emotions was called the bowels, the entrails. And it, it's this idea that like there's, some, there's something like so deep and unexplainable in somebody's soul that I don't know how else to explain it but to reference those like deep inner working parts of my body. I mean, that's the idea here in this word. So none of us would write on a love note. And I actually thought about doing this Friday before I took Carrie out um, just to see what the reaction would be. Like, I love you with all of my bowels, you know, and and just to see what would happen. Now, she probably would have laughed and rolled her eyes and uh, and just we would have had a good chuckle about that. But Paul is is saying to them now, look, I I make choices for you. My my heart is is set towards you. But my affections are for you as well, and my affections are the affections that Jesus has for you. And so he writes to them and says, look, I I love you, church. I love you with the love of Christ. And he uses this word, bowels, to express this. And we we can see why it gets translated in a different way. But in, you know, in 1611, when the King James was penned, this was how people talked and you know, can you imagine if some of our love songs today were written that way? I mean, if Tony Bennett was singing, I left my bowels in San Francisco, you know, that would, that, would, that would be a weird moment. I mean, it changes the mood of that room, if we're honest, all right? Maybe, maybe not holding your hand anymore. Okay, all right, so then he gets to verse 9, and he begins to write in verse 9 what then his prayer for this church is. 
up to this point, all he has said to this church is, look, I, I, I pray for you. And when I pray for you, I'm joyful because of who you are and what you have done for me and the gospel that you have been saved by. And there is joy that is overflowing in my soul and it's right for me to feel this way because I love you and my heart is set on you and I have the affections of Christ for you and the, the, the love that Jesus has for you is the love that I have for you. And now he's going to get into the content of this prayer. And in verse 9 he goes there and he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This word love here in verse 9 is a word that has um, no specific direction given, and by that I mean he doesn't tell them, I want you to love one another more. He doesn't tell them, I want you to love God more. There's no direction given for what their love should be. And I think he does so purposefully, and I think he does so purposefully because the direction is to be both. Go back and think with what Jesus said when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the, there, there's a root and a fruit in what Jesus said, all right, the, the loving of your neighbor as yourself happens in response to a heart sold out and dedicated and in love with Jesus Christ. So there's a root and a fruit. And here Paul says, look, I want you to love, and I want your love for Christ, and I want your love for one another to abound more and more. I want it to overflow. I want it to, I want it to continue to grow. And I want it to grow and continue in all knowledge and discernment. I think we can see knowledge and discernment there break down and, and, and kind of interpret and translate into two areas, facts and wisdom. So church, I want you to know more about God and His love for you. I want you to know more about the Bible and what God has said. But I, I don't want you to just have a bunch of knowledge that you can be proud of. I want you to know how to use that knowledge and apply that knowledge and put that knowledge into practice so that it's beneficial for those around you. So that's what I want you to do, church. I want your love, your love for the Lord, your love for one another to abound more and more, to grow excessively and increasingly. And I want it to grow in facts and wisdom, in discernment. So here's some things that we need to consider here. Biblical love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as he explains what love is. Biblical love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. And so as we think about our love growing and abounding more and more in knowledge and in discernment or the practical application of that knowledge, we just need to recognize here that to affirm or celebrate or accept beliefs or actions that do not conform with God's word is not biblical love because 
biblical love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in truth. And so to say, I know you're living like that, and that's, that's okay. I'm just going to love you and give you acceptance for that. That's, that's not actually love, as the Bible would define what love is. Love does not rejoice in evil, it rejoices in truth, and our love should grow and abound more and more in facts and in what the Bible does say and who God is and what he has called us to and discernment, how we can apply that in each other's lives. Now, in that, I think what we see today a lot of times, and certainly from those who maybe are more vocal in culture, is that they're very willing to stand up and scream and shout, you shouldn't do that, and they they try to pass that off as, well, I'm loving by confronting their sin. That may be, but you're not kind either. So love is kind, too. 1 Corinthians 13, you have another aspect of love being kind, Fruit of the Spirit, one of the aspects of that is kindness. So we, we got to have both there. we got to have both. This love, this abounding love is a love that calls it as it is. It, it, it's a love based on what the Scriptures say is right and wrong and how to apply that. But it's also a kind love. And we can't, can't neglect one for the other. And, and oftentimes, and what I just see happening in culture way too often is that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of perhaps well-intentioned, well-meaning people that, that want to scream about what you're doing and you shouldn't be doing, and they're, they're not doing it in a kind way, and all they're doing is screaming and losing their voice. And they're losing their opportunity to have an effective conversation because they're completely missing the fact that love is also kind. So our love does not rejoice in evil, it rejoices in truth, but it's also a kind love. And Paul wants this love to abound more and more. And he tells us then in verse 10, it's for the purpose of. He writes, so that, or literally, for the purpose of. You approving what is excellent. And so here we're just going to plot out these verses that he writes here. He's like, I want you to abound in love. I want your love to grow in facts and wisdom. And that is for the purpose of you approving what is is excellent. That's for the purpose of you having the knowledge and the know-how to apply that knowledge so that you can say yes to what God wants and no to what God doesn't want. Now here, we just need to pause and consider the fact that oftentimes we have a tendency, if, if not even being prone to, considering God's rules or what he has told us in the Bible to be burdensome commands trying to keep us from good things. Okay, we, we want something, but maybe there's a command in the Bible that we shouldn't go for that thing, and, and we, we grate against that, and we, God's keeping me from this thing that I want, and he's blocking me from achieving that desire. That's oftentimes how we can be prone to think about the rules that God has given. But the Bible tells us very clearly that God's rules are not intended to keep us from good things, but to lead us to the best things. And so are there lines that God draws making a box that that says, now you, you play in this box and don't go out, Absolutely. 
And some of them are really clear. But his intention is not to keep us from good things. It's to lead us to the best things. And in some ways, our understanding of what obedience to God is needs to be inverted because God's not trying to keep us from good stuff. He's trying to lead us to the best stuff. And Paul wants our love in knowledge and in the practical use of that knowledge to grow more and more so that we can say yes to what is excellent and no to what is not. Now, there's some really black and white things that happen in life that perhaps are easy to say yes and no to. Well, maybe they're not easy to say yes and no to. Perhaps it's more clear. We may struggle to say yes or no. We may be tempted to say the one we shouldn't, but there's at least clarity there. But I I think this command and what Paul is saying and the purpose that he has behind his command here goes goes beyond the very clear things in life and begins to hit at the priorities in life that we have. Those, those aspects of, uh, of our lives that, that begin to kind of guide and determine other decisions that we make. And so just to consider some of those things, I think Paul wants us to have our priorities line up with the Bible, that we would first and foremost, love God, and secondly, love our neighbor as ourself. I mean, if that's the most simplest way we can kind of boil down what the teaching of the Scriptures is, I I think that's a really good place to start. And so, do our priorities, and are they aligned in that way, that we can approve what is excellent, thereby honoring and glorifying God, and seeking the good of those around us. See, Paul doesn't want our love to abound so that we can be awesome at fantasy football. He's not interested in that. He doesn't want our love to abound so that every night we can watch hours and hours of television and waste time. He doesn't want our love to abound so that we can run away from hard Things He doesn't want our love to abound so that we can find some hobbies to occupy all our time and have nothing left for the participation, the fellowship with those in the church. He doesn't want our love to abound so that we can kind of just float through life looking just like the rest of the world with no discernible or observable passion for who God is. Now he says, I want you to approve what is excellent. I want you to say yes to the things that are excellent. And I think there's a better, best quality here. Are your priorities in line with what God would have you do? And and, and here, folks, I make no apologies for these four things hanging on the wall because I think every one of them is a biblical thing that we have been called to that your priorities need to be first and foremost that we, we exalt the risen, living Christ together on Sunday mornings, and we seek to do so in our lives throughout the week. That we find a place in our church to serve because God has given us gifts to serve. That we we seek to be in community with people. And I know we don't have a formal way that that gets expressed, but men, that gets expressed on Wednesday nights 
with the grace men. Ladies, that gets expressed on Wednesday nights with the Ask Sisters. That can be expressed in a CE class at 9.15, regardless of what age you are. You can do some community things, even though the church doesn't have a, an official program yet. And we're praying for that. We're praying God will give us a leader for that. That you would approve what's excellent and be purposeful in joining the work of sharing the gospel. Not just with your dollars for somebody else to do it, but for you to do it. See, I think the question, maybe to state in another way, is does every decision I make filtered through the grid of will this bring glory to God and is it good for those around me? In some ways, the what would Jesus do bracelets are really helpful in this sense. And they became this trend that people, you know, wore them all up and down their arms and they may have lost their, their, their redeeming quality to them at some point in that 1990s fad that took off and ran away. Uh, but the question, what would Jesus do, is a decent question to apply in this regard. To the choices I make and the priorities and values that I hold. I mean, let's just consider some of them. If I, if, I, if I take a job promotion that gives me more money but less time with my family, what priorities have I accepted? What priorities have I said yes to? If I choose to spend my money in the way that the world does, I most likely have nothing left to be able to give generously to those in need, to partner with my church, to do that fellowship thing. I mean, I could choose to buy more house than I can afford and find myself having to now work two jobs. And I, mean, I know people that have done so. They, they choose to buy a house that they can't afford on the one salary that they have. And he now has to go and work two jobs. And you just I wonder, is that excellent? Should that have been said yes to? I mean, I understand the reasons why they might have said yes to it, but is that excellent in the, God, in the way that God would define excellent here? I think these are some of the things that Paul's wanting to get after. It's purposefully looking forward as best we can to make decisions now that will glorify God 10 years from now. We don't always have the ability to see perfectly down the road, but it's aiming our lives and our directions for that. I've got a personal life goal that every 10 years I'm able to look back and kind of conclude I knew nothing then. Like That's just a personal goal of mine. So 10 years from now, I guess it'd be seven because I've been here for three. So seven years from now, I think it'd be awesome if I'd be able to look back and go, they should have never hired that guy. Like, I think it'd be great because what that speaks to is 10 years of growth, 10 years of, Lord willing, wisdom, of knowledge, of abounding in love, growing in facts and wisdom, knowing how to approve what's excellent, saying yes to what God wants the yes to be? Does this honor and glorify God? Does this and is this for the good of those around? And he then continues and says, and so be pure and blameless. 
And so Paul continues to say, look, I want you to abound in love. I want your love to be characterized by facts and by wisdom. And that's for the purpose of being able to say yes to what is best and what is excellent. And it's for the result of you being pure and blameless. Now, we got to go back to verse 6 here. Because he's already told us that that work of us being pure and blameless is guaranteed to happen because God finishes what he starts. So God's going to complete this good work. And this work is you and I becoming pure and blameless. It's you and I looking more like Jesus Christ and then one day we are glorified and given resurrection bodies patterned after Jesus Christ, where the work is now complete. God guarantees, I will finish it. But the command here for you and I to follow is for us to aim our lives and our choices and our desires so that the result would be us looking more like Jesus, us being pure and blameless. And he continues in verse 11, being pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That idea there, the fruit of righteousness, is that there are things that are observable in our lives that have grown out of our relationship with Christ. And we know people like this. We would refer to them as godly individuals. And when we say, you know what, that person is godly, this is what we mean. There's a fruit of righteousness about them. We don't use those words specifically, but we use the words, they're godly. And what we mean by that is they love the Lord, and you can observe it, and you can see it, and it's, it's, it's identifiable. And he wants us to be filled with those fruits that come through Jesus Christ the glory and praise of God. One last point on that last phrase, through Jesus Christ. The word through there literally means through the agency of. And Paul again returns almost full circle then to back to verse 6 to tell us where this change and transformation occurs. Perhaps more how this change and transformation occurs. We're familiar with the idea of agents because we have them in our lives. Professional sport athletes, they don't sign contracts unless their agents are involved. We don't often buy houses without an agent being involved. I mean, it can happen, but usually there's a real estate agent involved. The sale happens through them. Carrie and I adopted our son through an adoption agency. I mean, we gladly would have flown to China and just picked the kid up and come home, but they call that kidnapping. So we had to go through an agency. And here's the idea that Paul's returning back to. This fruit of righteousness, this saying yes to what is excellent, this pure and blamelessness, you growing and abounding in love and facts and wisdom, it happens through Jesus Christ. It does not happen on your own. It happens through him because the good work that he began he will be faithful to complete
So I just wonder, what if, this, what, what if these verses were our prayer collectively and individually this fall? I mean, what if individually and collectively we went before God and asked Him for this and then sought after making our choices reflecting the approving of what is excellent? What if together and individually we said, Lord, uh, make my love abound. Make my love abound. Make me, make me consider this body my family where I'm willing to give whatever and do whatever I can for those in this body that have need. And Lord, make my love abound in knowledge and discernment that I would be able to approve what is excellent. What, what would we look like if we just all went before the throne of God and made that our petition? That gets me excited when I think about what could take place. What God might do with a body of believers submitted to Him in that regard, petitioning Him for that kind of growth. God, help us love more. God, help us to know what to say yes to. What our highest and greatest priorities are. God, give us a greater zeal and passion for the sharing of the gospel. This is what Paul prays for this church when he prays for them. I think this would be a great prayer for us to make our prayer this fall. Would you pray with me now? And God, I pray for that. I don't know if they're praying for that, but I'm praying for that. And I'll pray for that on their behalf. God, I pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we would be able to approve what is excellent and that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father. God, made that and let that be true in us and of us. In Jesus' name, amen.